Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here uh, with David Scott, our global markets reporter, who's uh, getting over the cold that's going around Sydney at the moment. Yeah, just before I start, and hello world, um, I just want to go and make an apology. If there's any uh, sniffs or snorts that you hear through in the course of the other uh, podcast here, I assure you that uh, I'm really battling the moment, but I'll push through and I'll let you know too, I'm off the prescription medication, so I've got no excuses. And yes, I'm talking to you, Eddie Maguire. Um, And look, our our guest this week, uh, we're very privileged to have Chris Robertson with us, who is a veteran of global financial markets and investing. Um, Chris is a Kiwi by birth. Uh, He left New Zealand uh, to work uh, in investment markets in Europe and North America before finally coming back to Australia here. Uh, He's got 26 years uh, in the investment management industry with a particular focus on both quantitative and fundamental equities. Uh, He's seen many booms and busts, so he's got a great, uh, unique perspective on the global investment landscape at this very interesting time. And most recently, Chris held a senior position as uh, an investment director for equities at Colonial First State, which is a $200 billion uh, private wealth division of the Commonwealth Bank. And he's now working on a few projects of his own. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so, look, on the, on the show this week, we're going to talk a bit um, about uh, New Zealand first. Um, there's been some interesting developments in New Zealand over the, over the last few weeks um, with the currency, their inflation rate. Um, and you may not realize this, but the Kiwi dollar is the 10th most traded currency in the world. A um, little bit sort of being wrapped up with the, with the Aussie dollar, which is the world's fifth most traded currency. But um, so, so there's been a lot of action around the, the Kiwi dollar this week. We're going to talk a little bit about that because there are also some implications for what's happening over here in Australia. Um, so we'll talk about um, uh, uh, New Zealand. We're going to talk a little bit about Australian inflation. We've got a very important uh, RBA decision coming up uh, in, in August. Um, we're going to talk quickly about uh, what is happening in Venezuela. There is an emerging social crisis there um, uh, unfolding. And um, we are, at the end, we'll talk about the, um, the, the global, continuing global rally in, uh, in stocks. Uh, and we might chat a little bit about our uh, favorite uh, uh, discoveries in the Sydney social scene uh, recently. So let's get on with it. To New Zealand, right? Uh, so this week, the Kiwi dollar has been tumbling after the Reserve Bank of New Zealand signaled in very clear terms that it was going to be cutting rates from the current 2.25%. Uh, New Zealand, like a lot of economies, including Australia, is fe- feeling the impacts of the low inflation environment globally. Uh, its inflation data was out this week, uh, printed at 0.4% for the quarter, Small miss when 0.5 is expected, but it's kind of a pattern that we're seeing in advanced economies around the world. Now, what's interesting is the split. Uh, so tradable inflation um, was incredibly negative, minus 1.5% year on year, while the domestic inflation rate was uh, 1.8% year on year. Now, we're going to get into some of the details in a minute, but Chris, um, you've just been back to your home country. 
um, and you've been having a look around there. Fascinating time for New Zealand. Um, what was your take on where things are um, over there? Well, you know, when I was over in Auckland, I was in Auckland and Taupo, I found that uh, there was a big sense of optimism. Um, the country seems to be booming. Um, we've got there's a, there's an Auckland house price bubble, um, which makes the Australian house price bubble look insignificant. Um, so there's a massive wealth effect in Auckland. And even further south, um, going out into the farmlands, um, going past all the, the, the sort of the, the milk processing plants and things like that, there's a lot of building and they're putting up stain, new stainless steel and new pipes and it looks like the whole country itself is just powering along. Yeah, right, because the dairy industry there has been through a huge um, uh, surge. You know, there's the, the Chinese market, um, you know, the huge um, export market for them now. Um, it really has uh, uh, really invigorated um, the sort of farming part of the, of the economy, hasn't it? It has, and milk prices did rise quite significantly um, last year before they fell back. But the New Zealand farmers are um, pretty smart, and they go through booms and busts quite a lot. So when there's, they're booming, they'll go out and they'll spend, they'll buy holiday homes, new cars, boats, and things like that. But when the prices come back, um, they'll tighten their belts. And talk to any um, dairy farmer, and the ones that I talk to, I come from a dairy farming background, um, the ones that I talk to, they believe that sort of four fifty five dollars is quite a fair price for, for milk, so... Um, they're quite comfortable where it's at at the moment. Yeah, and just um, remind us where it, where it is at, uh, right now. Um, it's around the four dollar mark. Yeah, right. So, th- so they're happy, um, and and you've got some demand from from those uh, from those um, cashed up farmers right now who are getting. Yeah, yeah, but I think a lot of people forget that New Zealand's not just dairy farming. Um, Horticulture is massive. Honey is massive. Um, the big good thing about New Zealand, with how it's positioned, is is it um, it can sell apples and and sort of stone fruits and things like that into the Chinese market in the Chinese off season. And one of the most popular products in China um, in that apple space is New Zealand red apples. Um, so there's a big export market there. And I think the other point that I think a lot of people forget is New Zealand's actually got a, a, a space program, which people what? may laugh about. <laughs> Where are they exploring? They are actually not exploring, but there's an outfit called Rocket Labs that are in the final stages of um, commercialising satellite launches out of New Zealand. Um, and they've got a, a rocket that can launch microsatellites. And these are satellite packages that are sort of 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres, very cheaply into low orbits around the Earth. Um, so if you Google Rocket Labs, there's a whole story, which is fascinating. Yeah, right. And um, is it in Martin Jetpack? Um, they're also, um, I think, from New Zealand. They grew up in New they Zealand. They are. They're from South Island. Uh, another big success story. Um, I think everyone dreams as, as kids of uh, being able to fly and having a jetpack, and I think he had a dream, and he's actually uh, built one, which is um, actually going on sale very soon uh, to sort of yeah. governments around the world. Uh, one of my favourite market stories is the day that that uh, stock started trading on the ASX, and it, when it first opened... Uh, it uh, went absolutely vertical and then it sort of tailed off during the day and ended up trading at the end of the session exactly where it started. So if you look at it, it looked like a jetpack um, flight path. It was just going (laughs) vertically up in the sky then. Um, look, um, let's have a quick quick chat about the, the, there was some important um, uh, economic data out of of New Zealand this week and that was, of course, as I said, the, the inflation. Okay, so housing sector, got this housing boom. Um, there was 2.1 big quarter-on-quarter increase in, in construction costs. Um, that's the most since uh, 2006. Um, construction costs um, were up 5.6% year-on-year. 
Um, so when you start, you know, so um, you start to look at this uh, lower domestic airfares uh, down 6.9% year on year. Then when you start to get to the prices for imported goods, um, and this is from a note from Deutsche Bank earlier this week, uh, some of the numbers here are really uh, um, they're low. Um, so household appliance um, prices fell 1.8% quarter-on-quarter. Computer equipment prices down 4.4% quarter-on-quarter. New car prices down 3.2% over the quarter. Telecommunication prices down 4.3%. Um, and then unusual seasonal 6.8% um, decline in accommodation services and then package holiday prices down 3.8% um, for the quarter, and then 8.5% for the year. Uh, these are ugly numbers. Um, Dave, um, uh, w the RBNZ updated us on um, that they had a special economic out, uh, update this week. Um, what was the take at? It's not the, uh, the special economic uh, assessment, but it's also their announcement earlier the week in relation to the housing market and you know, investors. Uh, they're tightening uh, macroprudential reg regulations over the uh, housing investors, which a lot of people are pinning the blame for, for, uh, for increasing uh, house prices in New Zealand uh, astronomically in some parts, particularly in Auckland. Um, basically, in their, uh, their assessment today, they went and laid the foundation for a rate cut to uh, 2% in August on August 11, should I say. Um, and they cited the high Kiwi dollar as being a major influence on depressing uh, tradable inflation, tradable goods. Uh, you've got technology as well, which is lowering prices across the globe. Couple that with the, uh, the higher Kiwi dollar, and you've got a tradable inflation rate that's, uh, that's been barely above zero. I think uh, over the past four years, one quarter, it's actually been higher year on year, actually positive year on year. Uh, the rest of the time, it's actually been negative, and that's really weighing on inflationary pressures. So, um, and, and Chris, what, like, what do you see um, when, when you look at that, um, that domestic economy? I mean, obviously, the construction sector is supporting an awful lot of the, the price growth. The construction sector is, and, and, and part of the, um, the reason behind that is in Auckland, a lot of the properties are on very big blocks. Um, and what, what's happening is, is they're doing a lot of infill housing. So they're taking the blocks and halving them and putting two houses onto one block which is sort of driving that. Um, the RBNZ has got a, got a big issue in the fact that Auckland house prices are rising. And I remember when I was working in New Zealand in the 1990s, they had exactly the same problem. Um, you've got to remember New Zealand's got a population of about 4.5 million people, but of that, um, about a third live in Auckland. So what the um, RBNZ are seeing is they're seeing that everywhere outside of Auckland, things are slowing down, as we're seeing in these inflation numbers. But then they've got a massive housing boom going on in Auckland, which is you know, one of the largest, one of the biggest bubbles in the world and housing at the moment. So what do they do? Do they cut rates to stimulate the rest of the country and see that boom continue? Or do they you know, look at other ways of uh, implementing it? Yeah, just looking at some of the other uh, price figures, uh, nationally, uh, prices uh, for house prices in New Zealand have risen 13.5% in the, uh, the year to June. And that's 16.1% for Auckland in the last 12 months. So it makes the likes of Sydney, it's uh, just shy of 10% look like you know, chump change. It's uh, hardly uh, even worth noticing. But the one thing I found interesting as well, I just did a bit of back research uh, in, in terms of uh, what Chris was saying about uh, making Australia's property bubble or potential bubble look uh, like you know, very small in comparison. Um, house prices uh, nationally have risen 42.6% in New Zealand since the 2007 peak. Now, I went and had a look at some of the core logic figures. Um, from the recent trough that was struck in January 2009, which was the, uh, the peak uh, doom and gloom of the, uh, the global financial crisis, prices in Australian capitals have risen 55% over that period. 
55%, and no, no, it gets better, 80, 88% in Sydney. Since January 2009, prices have gone up, and 71.8% in Melbourne. So um, very similar sort of situation that what the RBNZ and the RBA are grappling with. You've got uh, disinflationary forces which are driving inflation down. Uh, you've got a bit of labour market slack as well, which is contributing to it. Uh, there's a lot of household incomes are stagnating. So they've got this twin, twin things they've got to go and focus on the housing market or the general economy and what's going to be the most, uh, the lesser evil per se. And at the moment, uh, it seems that uh, both uh, RBA, RBNZ and the RBA in conjunction with, the, uh, with APRA, Australia's uh, financial regulator, are putting a lot of faith in macroprudential tools to go and calm this. But uh, what you're seeing at the moment is certainly that uh, when it comes to inflation, there's no problem when it comes to house price inflation, but uh, in otherwise parts of the country uh, and other parts of the real economy, there's, uh, there's simply no inflationary pressures. Uh, yeah, that is a vertigo-inducing uh, stuff, 88% for Sydney. It's, it's incredible. But this leads us nicely now to, to, to the RBA. There's a lot of people who think that the RBA is ready to cut. There wasn't an expl explicit easing bias uh, in, its, uh, in its statement um, last month um, or earlier in, in July. Um, but uh, there is a significant chance that, um, uh, that they'll cut rates from the current record low already um, of 1.75%. And, of course, they need to balance this with um, what is happening in the, in the Sydney housing market in particular because everybody thought that this year would be the year when it finally slowed down. And I saw a really interesting note from, um, from Macquarie this week which was talking about how the Brexit decision uh, is going to be a positive for Australian GDP, and part of that will be because relative to some other countries and relative to the UK, Australia's attractiveness as a destination for migration has suddenly gone up a few notches. So you might get some people, um, Australians, first of all, coming back to Australia from the UK, and then when other maybe skilled workers, etc., um, are thinking about, well, where do I go to spend a few years working, developing my career, or, or having an overseas experience that Australia has kind of, um, you know, um, become more attractive in that regard? And of course, what this does is uh, likely to increase uh, demand for um, housing uh, in certain parts of uh, in certain parts of Sydney. So it's just yet another thing that in the year that we thought that Sydney, ha the Sydney has housing market and Melbourne may finally see. Um, some, you know, a cap on, on price growth, um, that there's another leg in there to, um, to stir it on, and we may have another rate cut by the end of the year. Uh, Dave, what's your take on this? The whole uh, Brexit thing, it's a lot of hypotheticals at the moment. Of course, they've actually got to go and uh, enact Article 50 of the uh, EU treaty at the moment, which they haven't done, and the bookmakers, as uh, God bless them, they were wrong when it came to the Brexit vote. Uh, they're, they're saying that there's now a strong chance that they actually won't go and uh, invoke that, uh, that Article 50. Um, you're right in terms of it will go and... An influx of people coming back to Australia will go and help to, uh, to go and boost GDP. But they've got to be absorbed into the labour market as well. And my question is, where are these people going to find jobs? They've already got an elevated unemployment rate compared to what we're seeing in uh, the pre-GFC the, the pre years. Um, and also, we've got a very, very high underemployment rate. And that was something the RBA touched on as well. And there are the last uh, set of minutes for their June meeting, or sorry, their July meeting. Um, so there's a whole lot of, whilst it might go and add to GDP, it might actually go and add to disinflationary pressures because you're going to have more people competing for a set number of jobs uh, and that's going to do nothing for wage inflation, which we of course know is running at record lows.
So and one of the things that we've seen um, is, you know, again, to, to, to tie this back to what we've seen uh, in the inflation picture in New Zealand, is that the Aussie dollar has um, been caught up in this kind of global risk rally uh, that we've seen since uh, since Brexit, right? So FTSE in London's, you know, just thumping along now, even though it got smashed uh, in the days after um, after the referendum. Um, but there's this sort of buoyancy there um, uh, about it now. Um, the ASX uh, has been in there as well, you know, now looking up over 5% for the year all of a sudden. Um, and, um, you know, but the Aussie dollar, um, like I said, has been part of this, right? So it's uh, trading, I think, as we're recording, somewhere around 74 point something cents. Um, it's been as high as uh, 76. Um, so, Chris, um, this, um, this, this, uh, the level of the Australian dollar has some impacts on, on firms and on companies um, and, and also on you know, their profitability outlook because of the inflation picture. Um, what's your take uh, on, on where the Aussie dollar is at? Um, at the, these levels, it will definitely weigh on the firms. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, that we're looking at in investment markets is um, not only the revenues that the firms are generating but also their, their input costs. Um, they, they like the lower Aussie dollar because their input costs will be lower for all that goods, but also if they, they're more competitive if the Aussie dollar is lower, if they're exporting overseas. So that will definitely weigh on their outlook. And this is an environment where their, their revenue growth is subdued anyway. Um, so I think a lot of companies, the last thing they would need is for a dollar, the Aussie dollar to continue to rally. Um, they need it down. We'll talk a bit, a bit about the global stock outlook as well, but you know, how do you reconcile what's happening in the ASX um, with this, um, you know, um, with this uh, the fundamentals of what are um, what uh, what's going on in the Australian economy, um, you know, highest, higher Australian dollar than we probably would like. Um, so, how do you um, reconcile that with you know what we're seeing um, on the ASX, particularly this rally? It seemed to have come out of nowhere. Yeah, this rally to me is more um, a money flow rally than a fundamental rally, um, and you're seeing this global rally. Um, and what I think it is is that. Um, the global markets uh, saw this Brexit announcement. They're believing that central banks may step in and, and implement more uh, monetary policy. Um, so it, it's sort of a, a, the flow of money, and it's piling into into risk assets. Um, in global global bonds and global treasuries, interest rates are so low that people are sort of staying away from there. And in, particularly in the Aussie market as well, because the yields are so high, um, people are going to be buying the yield stocks as well. Chris, I might just ask you a question as well in relation linking back to what the Aussie's doing, particularly Aussie yen. Uh, over the, Since the lows of the Brexit vote on that Friday, Friday morning and Friday afternoon we saw here in Asia, uh, from that point the Aussie yen has actually rallied close to 10%. It actually was more than 10% up until a couple of days ago. How much of it, the inflow of funds that you're seeing to the Australian market at the moment would you put down to, say, Japanese investors seeking out yield? I noticed that a lot of the yield sectors as well and the ASX at the moment are really benefiting from this risk rally. Good question. Um, and I was afraid you're going to ask me a currency question. I'm not a currency expert, but one thing I am an expert on is um, equity yields and the Japanese investor. Um, Japanese retail investor um, are yield seekers. They'll seek it anywhere around the world and they will chase it. Um, and what you'll find is they'll pile into one high yielding market until the yield will start to fade and then they'll pull the money out pretty quickly and then pile into the next market. And this is clearly what they are, they are doing. Um, they're looking to shift their money offshore. They're looking for high yield. Um, you're also, Paul, you mentioned that the New Zealand dollar is 
is um, one of the most you know, top 10 traded currencies in the world. A lot of the Japanese investors go into the New Zealand market because if you look at all the utility stocks over there, the yields are particularly high. And you've got some pretty good companies, like at, at one stage you could buy contact at sort of 9% yield, which is an electricity company. Um, so the Japanese investor is definitely a yield-seeking investor. Yeah, so uh, Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe, um, I think they're referred to as in markets. Exactly, exactly. And, and so how do, just a practical question, um, what mechanisms do they use to buy these? Um, do they go through, through their banks? Um, do they have share trading no, platforms? No, a lot of, the, um, lot of the, 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 the funds management companies in Japan are creating yield products. Um, and the sort of products that they're, they're creating is they're creating it and um, where they've got different baskets of yield. So I have New Zealand yield, Australian yield, maybe some European yield and property. And then they'll sell it through the distribution networks, the retail distribution networks. Um, and from my experience, I've found that they, they can start with zero from, you know, on day one and, you know, have a billion dollars within a few months. Wow. Um, do you think, uh, just a question for you, so you, you, you've been, you know, you've worked in the States and, and, and in Europe, and I think one of the things that uh, I find interesting sometimes is that a lot of the commentary um, around what's happening in, in the Australian, particularly with the ASX, is about, well, it's about domestic demand. Um, you know, and uh, investors cheer on or investors, you know, um, you know, w were buoyed by a result for, you know, whatever company. Um, so given that, which I think fascinating that Japanese investors might be, you know, particularly um, with the, the change in, in the Aussie yen equation, um, deciding, well, now's a good time to pile into Australia. Um, so um, do you think that, that you know, that that's, that influence sometimes gets missed? I think it does, and I, I think um, I think we forget how small Australia is in the, in the scheme of things. Um, not only just from the Japanese investors um, piling in with billions and billions of dollars, but also the other global investors as well. Um, if you get some of the big investors out of the US and Europe, and the Middle East is actually a very big investor into Australian equities as well. They like that Australian equities story. Um, if their asset allocation model flashes up that they need to make an investment into the Australian market, they can pile in pretty quickly and move that market quite significantly. Yeah, because the, the sums involved there, um, you know, when we've got the volumes that we have uh, here, you know, the amount of um, capital that they can throw at the Australian market can move it, right? Exactly, exactly. And when I was, um, when I was managing quant portfolios, you could see in the market when there was a portfolio being bought in the market. Um, because typically what they do is they're not overly descending on price. They'll give a basket of stocks to a stockbroker and say, can you go and buy this in Australia? And the broker will just go and buy it for them. Yeah, right. Um, fascinating. You are listening to the Devils and Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. You can find us on iTunes under Devils and Details, on the web at businessinsider.com.au, on Facebook at Business Insider Australia, and on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Um, We've just been talking about super low inflation. I just want to turn quickly to one country that is having the opposite problem, and that is Venezuela. Um, the country has had problems for the last year or two. Um, uh, you know, the low oil prices, it's a big oil exporter. It's, it's pr pretty much its only export. Um, but now uh, it's starting to look like it might be close to some kind of real social catastrophe. So listen to this. Uh, this is from a story we had on Business Insider um, uh, uh, this week. So almost 90% of the country says their incomes are insufficient to meet their food needs. Uh, car production uh, shrank 86% in the first half of the year to just 10 units a day. It's basically going to shut down. Um, oil production, which is 95% of its, of its export earnings, fell to a 13-year low. Uh, it's likely to keep falling. 
Uh, approval for President Nicolas Maduro shrank to a Tony Abbott-like 23.3% in May. Um, that's the lowest since October uh, 2015. And the inflation figure, this is eye-watering. Uh, the IMF now reckons that this is going to rise to 4,000% by 2020, unemployment heading for about 20%, right? So you know, money's running out, prices going bananas. Um, there is no food in the country, and I think this week we've seen uh, 120,000 Venezuelans swarming across the, the western border um, and trying to get stuff uh, in, um, in, in Colombia. Like, just extraordinary. Um, what what we do here, guys? Um, you know, what, what can happen? Um, it's looking really grim, and are there any answers? Well, when, uh, when there was this inflation in Zimbabwe, what they did is they, um, they adopted the, the US dollar um, as a unit of their currency. Um, the problem with Venezuela is they've gone out so many times over the last many, many years um, attacking the US. Um, I don't know if that's going to work particularly well for them. Um, apart from that, I, I honestly don't know. Um, it's been a classic textbook case of how to ruin an economy that, that um, had massive oil revenues. Um, yeah, wouldn't it be nice uh, to have a reset button that would just go and magically reset everything to, uh, to perfection? Um, but unfortunately, it's not as easy as that. Uh, I don't know that what the answer is either. It's, um, they've lost the faith of financial markets. That's the best way to describe it. It's, uh, they're an economy that uh, had all their revenues coming from one particular product, which was oil, and that's been decimated by price. Obviously, they've let their uh, infrastructure run down as well, and there's simply no revenues left to go and buy necessities. Um, I was looking at uh, the official exchange rate. US, one US dollar buys one Venezuelan bolivar is apparently 9.975 at the moment. Um, in the black market, it's more than 100 times that, so it's, uh, it's over 1,000. Um, so that gives you a bit of an indication for those uh, the poor Venezuelans, the average Venezuelan on the street trying to go and buy everyday items which are scarce anyway, which is already in contributing to the other uh, huge inflation levels we're seeing. Um, where does the answer start? Well, I think they've got to go and either look to peg their other currency to a, a particular other currency, uh, which is much more stable, and try and bring inflation under control and then start from there. But I think everyone's going to be saying the same thing. It's not going to be a difficult – it's going to be a very difficult task, should I say. And the other interesting thing is that approval rating that's um, in a country that controls the approval rating process, so, yeah. and they can't even get more than 23%. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah and I think, you know, there, there's, you know, I suppose the one thing I suppose that, that that sort of points out for me is the importance that um, of having a, a diverse um, export base, um, which is something that, you know, Australia is trying to figure out. We've got, you know, um, stuff that we dig out of the ground and then, um, we've got um, great beaches and everything um, for people to come to and, and visit. But uh, I suppose it's been one of the themes of the, um, the economy over the last few years. What else can we sell? Yeah, nothing really says Venezuela much like uh, the trials and tribulations of Pastor Maldonado. I'm not sure how many people are out there are Formula One fans, but I certainly am. Uh, he's uh, famous for crashing a lot, and he was also famous for being sponsored by the state-backed uh, oil company uh, in uh, in Venezuela, funding his ride with uh, with Lotus back in the day. And he's no longer been uh, funded. He's no longer in Formula One. And I think that just sums up perfectly the you know, what's happened with Venezuela. They rode the oil boom. It was looking fantastic. You know, Miss Universe is coming out of everywhere. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got this guy who's famous for crashing in Formula One races, and now he's crashed out of Formula One. So that, uh, that tells me what Venezuela economy is like in general right now. 
Sport imitates life. Um, Okay. Uh, So I want to quickly talk again about this, um, about the global stock rally. Um, It really has been extraordinary, right? So both of you, uh, you know, follow both the technical um, aspect of rallies like this um, and and then the fundamentals. And we're seeing in the U.S. both the Dow and the S&P 500 um, all-time highs, right? Uh, and again, you know, back home here in Australia, we've seen the, the ASX, um, you know, um, charging ahead um, over the last few weeks and finally turning sort of positive for the year, right? Um, now, uh, but people have been talking for years um, about how um, stocks are expensive uh, on historical measures, and particularly when you look at it from a PE um, perspective. Um, and, you know, there's a whole range of, of ways of looking at it. So there's a Goldman Sachs analyst, uh, Shiba Jafari. Um, so the S&P is currently trading around uh, 2170 as we're recording. Um, and uh, Jafari is looking at, um, you know, um, 2263. So uh, around about another 5% um, in a, over the month, um, but possibly hitting as high as 2452, which would be another 10% rally over the next month. That is eye-watering stuff um, if that got to that point. Um, so he says, you know, 2452, that would, you know, there'd be pullbacks um, along the way to there, and it may, may never close at that point. Um, people would just get out. Um, so um, uh, what is going on? Uh, Chris, you've seen some of these screeching rallies before. Um, I have seen these screeching rallies before. And looking at this one, the, the, the one thing that comes to mind is, is it's too much too soon. Um, if, if you look at sort of the, the sort of the first half of this year, um, there's been no sort of change in, in sort of fundamentals between then and what we're seeing now, but the market's rallying. Um, and that's why I think it's more a money flow type rally. Um, if anything, the, the risk, risk out there is, is, has been increased. You've had the Brexit, um, you've got an increase of, in terrorism attacks in Europe. Um, there's questions around European bank exposures to, to places like Italy and you know, whether the European banks are as strong as they're making out. Um, so if anything, the risks have become more elevated, but it's not been reflected in the market, and that's why I do believe it is, is, is a sort of a, a liquidity rally. Um, and the thing that I've seen with liquidity rallies like this is that when they, when they end, they end pretty spectacularly and pretty quickly as well. Um, and if you're looking at the, the VIX index, you know, they're at all-time lows as well. So my general view is I think the, market, the market's become... It's had a relief rally post-Brexit, and then now it's become a bit too complacent around risk. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I'm being very, very careful um, about chasing this rally at all. Certainly the markets are putting an incredible amount of faith in central banks and central banks pumping out easy money for the foreseeable future. Uh, and then couple that with, uh, you know, the threat of Brexit keeping the uh, Federal Reserve on hold for an extended period of time. Uh, my personal view is that the markets are setting themselves up for massive disappointment. I think that the, the news of central bank policy is baked in the cake. It is priced in, uh, which means that if there's any letdown uh, when it comes to central bank policy, whether that's the Bank of Japan produces a, a smaller uh, stimulus package than what they expect or what the, uh, the Japanese government in particular uh, does with their stimulus uh, no budget, they're looking to go and uh, implement in the next, uh, next couple of weeks as well. Uh, it all says to me that uh, you know, the markets have already run far too quickly based on the premise that something may occur. And if that doesn't occur, then what's left to underpin the rally? Um, I don't really see it. 
I think the other issue that a lot of central banks have is with these record low rates. Um, if you're a central bank and you want to implement some monetary policy decisions and you've got rates around 3%, you can you can reduce them by 50 basis points and that will have an impact on markets. But if you've got interest rates that are sort of zero or negative, um, no matter how much you cut them further, it's not going to sort of transmit the monetary policy. And so I think with the central banks, the effectiveness of their monetary policy using the current tools they have is waning significantly. Um, but the big question is, is, is what, they, what else have they got in their kit bag to, to influence it? Can, um, can I talk a little bit about the, one of the features of a liquidity rally, which is um, uh, buying the dip? Right. So um, do you want to just go through this? I saw a great, a great meme. It'd be great for you, I think, to explain to our listeners what, what buying the dip is. It's a, um, there is a phrase in markets which is BTFD, um, which is buy the effing dip. Um, and, um, you know, the, you'd say it like, you know, man up and uh, BTFD. Um, I saw a meme during the week um, which was uh, on the lines of, you know, what's down? Oil. Um, what does that mean? More sideline money. What'll we do? BTFD. Um, Chris, can you explain um, to, uh, uh, buy the dip? Oh, buy the dips when you get seeing strong rallies in markets like this. So, so what people are doing is sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the market to have a temporary pullback on the expectation that they'll buy at a lower price than the market's at now and that it will continue to rally up through. Um, that's all well and good and works until the dip becomes a crash. Um, and you don't know when you're at the bottom of the dip whether it's going to keep on going or whether it's going to rebound. Um, and the thing is, and I've found this over the years, is that with um, hindsight, everyone can explain a crash but no one can explain that a crash is occurring when they're actually in it. Um, so I'd be very careful in buying the dip. BTFD, one of my favourite sayings in markets, particularly in the Aussie dollar, so, um, being a currency boy from way back. It's uh, been a common theme of uh, recent years. Um, I think it's the markets are holding uh, central banks in particular to hostage. Uh, I think the markets understand that the central bankers and policymakers cannot afford to have a financial crisis with economic growth around the world and the major economies so weak as it is. If you go and throw another financial crisis similar to what we saw during the European debt crisis or the GFC, uh, it really leaves absolutely nothing left. And that's where that mentality gets drawn from, in my opinion, is that they cannot let the markets go and fall for the consequences, what it will mean to the real economy. Yeah, so, um, well, the, the most famous example of this is China national team. You know, if the market starts looking wobbly, um, they'll send in the pension funds, et cetera, to just go in and, you know, stop. Um, what's happening? Yeah, sure. I'll 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 pay you. You know, um, you know, a couple of percentage points more than that stock's currently trading at, just to stop it falling. So, um, and did, did, does this happen in a lot of markets? Do you reckon? It does, but the issue is, is that um, the first time they do it, um, market reacts really, really positively. The second time they do it, the market's kind of expecting it, so the reaction isn't as strong, and then it kind of fades. So they've got to sort of increase the the influence and the um, the interference they have into markets to get the required impact and, and, and result that they want. Um, but, yeah, it does happen. It's happened over, over you know, my career. I've seen it quite often. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, this is the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're going to wrap up with a quick chat about um, some of our favourite Sydney bars. Chris, you found a new place. I did. I went for lunch um, at the Palisade Hotel yesterday. Um, the one Sydney institution that, that I have uh, mourned the loss of is the long lunch, so I decided to take a stand and uh, went to the uh, Henry Dean Hotel, uh, Henry Dean Restaurant at the top of the Palisade. View was awesome, food was great, and the wine list was uh, to die for. Yeah, standing up for traditional uh, values. 
Exactly. Um, I have to say, you know, I, I live in Petersham, and um, yeah, which is the inner west of Sydney, and um, there's, um, you know, the place has been, you know, there's been been one of the places where there's been a sort of um, influx of um, young, I suppose, families. Uh, so there's a couple of pubs that have been renovated there, and one of the bars is a, a place called the Oxford Tavern, which used to be a topless bar, and. Um, uh, it would be all, you know, tradies and so on there during the day. And, um, you know, you'd see them out in their high-vis. Um, but um, it's been bought by a big pub chain, um, I think Keystone Group from memory. Um, <clears throat> Keystone Group or, or maybe Maryvale. Anyway, they've bought it and they've redone it as this kind of, you know, place with Sunday afternoon barbecues. Um, but they've kept some of the original decor. So some of the little booths and everything. Um, and it's really, really popular. The food is really good, um, you know. Um, so um, so that's, you know, just an interesting place to go. Um, and I should clarify, it was the first time I'd ever been in there after uh, it was after it got renovated. <laughs> well, you can tell that they get some of the furniture. Um, okay. Uh, and then the other place, uh, the, the other place to go is a little place um, called um, the, the Petersham Inn, um, uh, or it's called the West Village now, um, but it's still known as its nickname, called, which is the Sham, um, after Petersham. But they've got you know a sort of dog-friendly little outdoor area, and, and that's, that's a really good place to hang out on a, on a Sunday. I'm a pretty simple man when it comes to uh, culinary tastes, you know, particularly you know having a beer, like a good beer, cold beer, good chat, uh, good steak would do me fine. I don't really mind where it is. Um, company is more important to me. Um, I live um, in a south, so around Surrey Hills, Roy, and um, I'm a big sports fan. And one thing I've been fairly disappointed about is the Dolphin Hotel at Surrey Hills has gone all uh, hipsterish on us. Uh, it looks like it's some uh, some white uh, paraphernalia on the walls, which I was uh, not accustomed to seeing when I first walked in there after the renovations. Um, Look, hopefully all the best for them and everything else, but uh, it's not my cup of tea, and I'm sure a lot of the other uh, sports fans around the area will be a bit disappointed as well because it was one of the last hangouts that we used to have to, uh, to go and enjoy watching live sport on the big screen. Um, elsewhere in the city, you know, restaurant-wise, you know, I can't go past um, Neptune Palace down at Circular Quay. It's a great hangout for, uh, for a lot of the old market types from way back. So if you ever get a chance, Neptune Palace, have a uh, look it up on, uh, on Google Maps. Uh, rusty motorbike, guaranteed. Yeah, it's been, the Dolphins actually, because it's near um, the the Sydney Cricket Ground and um, uh, um, Allianz Stadium there. So you'd go there maybe before a game or after a game. Um, and it was in the 90s or, or early 2000s when they did the last renovation. I think it was um, one of those places kind of shiny, that kind of, um, you know, everything's kind of being, you know, putting bloody, you know, animals' heads on walls and, you know, Indian tapestry and blah, blah, blah. Whereas back those days, it was all about shiny and chrome. Um so yeah, the dolphin was, the, and now it's now I can't believe it's gone all hipster. It has. It's just it's one of those things. It's just it's been a familiar theme. Maybe it's just the the, the area. I know obviously it's got a bit of a tradition of being a hipster hangout, and it's obviously catering for the other clientele in the area. But it's disappointing. I can't go and talk from a, a publican or an owner perspective about how that, you know, that what the impact is in revenues and and what it does to the bottom line for business. But it's just it's everything is becoming the same. Uh, and there's nothing, there's, it would be actually unique to go and see like a sports bar or something like an old school bar, uh, main, maintain like its presence. So to me, it's just disappointing to go and see so many pubs are going that way. We're not expecting to go back to, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, 90s where you could go and like, no, you obviously can't have a cigarette inside and dingy and you know, sticky carpets and all the rest. But 
just some variety, not just the same offering over and over again would be nice. Oh, if you wanted a sports bar of the sort of on the old style but a bit modern, um, Dick's Hotel in Balmain. Fantastic. Ah, they keep the atmosphere, they've got the telly, so support the local rugby team, got good beers on tap, that'd be the place to go. Fantastic. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here with David Scott. Great to be here again. And our guest this week has been uh, Chris Robertson. Chris, thank you so much for coming in and joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. That's great. So you can find us on iTunes, where we'd love it if you could rate us and leave us a review. You'll find us on the site at uh, www.businessinsider.com. Have a great week. And remember, this isn't advice, but uh, stay calm and BTFD. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.